Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Yo, what is happening? My friend, Coach Brad Wilson here with EnhanceYourEdge.com, joined by Nick Howard, the founder of Poker Detox. And today, I'm going to keep this intro short. We're diving into the Galfond Challenge. We're going to be talking about the mindset issues of getting walloped. Phil is down now close to a million dollars straight away the negative free roll of scheduling all of these matches in advance and much much more so without any further ado let's jump into nick and i's conversation nick how are we doing today my man what's up man good to be here good i'm doing well you taking a little break from from all your your online consults to uh, discuss the Galfond Challenge that is uh, taking over the poker community. Yeah, I'm interested to explore it a little bit because I think you're a little bit more well versed on the logistics of what's going on. But I've been putting some thought into like the types of downfalls of challenges like this when they start off wrong and i have some i think some interesting insights on uh why potentially there should be more considerations to protect the guy who is going to play all these matches and i think we'll get into that but once you start by laying the groundwork of uh the progression of this whole challenge yeah um you're you're a data guy right and i think the, the data point to work off of for the Galfon Challenge, going back is uh, 2009, January, Tom Dwan started his infamous Dur Challenge, um, where the only person that he wouldn't play was Phil Galfond, uh, which is interesting in its own right, just going back um, to now Galfond having his own Galfond Challenge, I think. And then obviously Dur beat Patrick Antonius, got crushed by Jungle, and then the challenge remains unfinished. Uh, Tom is stuck 1.25 million after about 19K hands, according to the last reporting. Um, And so to sort of build up stakes here, what do you think the mindset of like a Tom Dwan is after, you know, getting crushed after 19K hands against Jungle? Well, he went dark. So it couldn't have been good to start off. Yeah, um, not a good sign. But you never know like what's really going on. It might have been worth it if he just had other opportunities that popped up that he thought were just way more lucrative. And Tom didn't ever seem like somebody who was that concerned about his image. So maybe he just didn't care what it looked like and he just followed the money. Um, yeah, you you mentioned in the pre-call that like, Obviously, it was bad for his permanent image um, because there's no real good frame for something like that. When you ditch a challenge and it doesn't get completed for 10 years, it's not a good look. But, you know, we're speculating because we don't know what was going on in his life or mostly the other opportunities that he might have had or how he even views the value of completing a challenge like that from a from an image perspective. Could be not even occurring to him. Yeah, it's again, it's tough speculating on Tom Dwan because you know he he kind of went dark, but obviously it hurts his legacy. I think it didn't didn't do him any favors overall. Whether that matters to him or not, I don't know. But um, I do just want to point out the the Tom Dwan challenge because I think this is the precursor to the Galfon challenge, right? This this is what could happen. Um, not that Galfon's not going to finish the challenge. I do want to state up front, like, I like Phil Galfon. I think he's an asset to the poker community. Seems like a good guy trying to do a good thing. But getting smashed like this and in a public setting with expectations, um, there's a lot at stake. There's a lot at risk for Phil Galfon. Um, 
and I, I want to talk about what's at risk for Phil Galfon, but also his opponents, right? Um, would you let's talk about the pressures of his opponents compared to the pressure on Phil Galfon, especially like Vini Vidi, who's anonymous effectively. It's a weird dynamic, I think, because there's always that intimidation factor that Phil will have just when he steps into the arena ever for being who he is. But then if there is a player who is already crushing the current games in the 2020 environment, maybe that intimidation factor is counteracted by that anonymous player's mindset saying, well, he's not even like in these games anymore. I'm in these games. I'm the one beating these games now. So I don't really know how that plays. Um, I guess it depends how hard Benny Vitti was beating the current state of the games, which I'm not really up to speed on. But I could see it going both ways. It's never going to be good. It's never going to be like you think you have a mental advantage over Galfon. But it could be a little bit healthier of a mindset for a player who's coming in knowing that he's beating the games in 2020 already that Phil's not even in anymore. Yeah. And especially if he's a reg. So he, so Vini Vidi, I know has played against Bryn Kinney because there are um, chats that I found on two plus two where Bryn Kinney's having a discussion with Vini Vidi. They're playing high stakes PLO. And I also know that Bryn Kinney publicly tweeted at PokerShares um, wanting action against Galfond in the Vini Vidi and Action Freak matches specifically. Um, and I'll say, like, if you're Vini Vidi and you kind of see the natural progression or the natural evolution of Heads Up PLO over time, and you see the competition that Galfond battled, and you understand their leaks, and then fast forward to today where he's playing against players comparatively to those other guys, you can kind of get a picture or he could kind of get a picture of like oh if phil hasn't actively been working on stuff then i really like my chances in this and two he also gets the prestige right like he, he gets the prestige of beating phil galfond in this challenge just like jungle man got for crushing tom duan yeah the, that, that's the interesting part of the conversation that starts to open up all the new dimensions of incentives at play like, not that this could really happen, but realistically, I think it could be a negative EV challenge for both players, and they would both still have incentive to do it. Yeah. Because it's not the only dimension that's in play. They have reputations. They probably have, I mean, Phil obviously has like a ton of branding in play behind this. Benny Vitti could have a lot of opportunities in the future if he wins. I mean, look at what happened with Doug Polk. If you establish yourself as the number one heads up, no limit player or PLO player at any given time in the history of the industry, it pretty much opens the doors for you to be able to do whatever you want and have a lot of leverage doing it like immediately after. So without actually knowing what the intentions of both parties are and what they have up their sleeve in sort of a multidimensional way, meaning what other things are they planning on leveraging with the influence and traction that they gained from the challenge? It's really hard to knock anybody for taking a shot, I think. Yeah, I think, like you said, there, there are other benefits. It's like the WSOP. I've spoken about this on the pod multiple times. When Chris Moneymaker beat Sammy Farha heads up, it leads to the poker explosion, the poker boom. You know, Moneymaker put a beat on Phil Ivey with, I think, 10, 11, or 9 left. It was very few people left. And Moneymaker winning actually made everyone so much more money just because of the growth that poker experienced. And so winning a tournament to me, like, like say, uh, Antonio Sfondiari, right? Golden Age of Poker wins a WPT, right place, right time, right result that made him millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars more than just winning the tournament because he got the prestige of being a poker champion and then became a mar marketable human in the poker space. So, yeah, I think there's upside for both guys. Um, not 
<laughs> the the downside is if one guy gets crushed, right? Like you want to see a slugfest where it goes back and forth. And what we're seeing right now is sort of the downside. Which is really a shame too, because for people that don't understand variance in general, just to open the, the statistical window for a moment, even if these guys were like closely matched, even if their edge was like on par with each other, there's still a really non-negligible chance. Like I'm guessing a double digit chance, especially since it's PLO that somebody gets blown out and the optics on that are not going to really do the data justice because nobody really understands how likely it is for somebody to get blown out in a match like this. Now Phil's getting blown out really, really hard, but it doesn't mean that he's such a huge dog. Like it doesn't mean that he's, that he shouldn't even be in the ring with him. Like there's still a, a very substantial amount of variance in play. Although I did see some calcs that looked really bad for Phil. Just Tell as, me. A counter, as a counter to that. <laughs> I me. saw something that he posted, which was uh, something along the lines of like, even if I was a 15 BB per 100 dog, the initial downswing that he went on for like, I don't know, 350K or so in the first 4K hands should only occur uh, less than 5% of the time, which was pretty startling because like at that point, Wait, let me think if I just said that right. Yeah, even if he was a 15 BB dog, it should only occur less than 5% of the time, which is like, at that point, you should, I think, be reconsidering whether or not you have edge. And he gave a decent calculation um, to to sort of show how he was trying to wrap his brain around that, which is also just so hard to do when you're in the heat of of the battle too. Like, brings me sort of to my point that I think if you're going to do something like this, you need to have like a consult of <laughs> a, a very close uh, objective advisors that are basically helping you parse the information that's coming at you in a in the most scientific way possible. Because like, I'm just going to throw this out there. It's my personal belief and it's not a, a totally well investigated one. But when I combine the mindset issues that are likely in play right now after Phil's down almost a million combined with the the hard statistical evidence that he's likely a huge dog right now I can't think of a good reason to finish the Veniviti match like I think it would be a mistake unless he has some ace up his sleeve that is giving him incentive for other reasons like um, if he thinks that the image of the whole challenge will just go to shit if he forfeits the first match. Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't really think that should happen. I think it's sort of like a responsible concession almost. It's like almost honor, an honorable resignation was, would be sort of how I would perceive it. I wouldn't see it as like, oh, he's not even like, not even man enough to finish his own challenge. Like, I don't see it like that. It's just like, he's outmatched. He didn't realize. He's also suffering from a really, really bad run versus the player. It's better to just cut losses and prepare for the next match. So from a non-emotional standpoint, I 100% agree. I don't know what the general population will view this um, if he concedes right now. Like I think, you know, we've, we're seasoned veterans in the game. We've been around. We've thought about poker probably a lot more than most people have. Um, the public image might be very different than like our image of the situation, I would think. I guess it just has to come at at that point. The question that needs to be asked is why is Phil actually doing this? Like, I don't think this was actually like this claim to fame where he wanted to reestablish himself as the goat. I don't think that's what's going on. Me neither. I think it's him seeing a good opportunity to increase the popularity of poker and hopefully drive traffic towards his new site and his, just his brand in general. And I think he also just enjoys it, but it, gets less enjoyable when you're getting your teeth knocked in by somebody who's beating you probably at greater than 50 BB, 15 BBs per hundred in a public forum where everyone is watching. So like from what I've seen, like, and, and just what I know about Phil from observing him over the last decade, it's like, he's never been an ego guy. Um, and so I would expect even amidst all of the, mindset distortion that he's probably trying to navigate right now that 
he's well aware that he has nothing to really prove in terms of uh, like the, the type of reputation you would regain back from the people who would shame you for losing this match are not the type of people that are worth trying to get the approval of anyway, because they're just so fleeting in how they dish out their validation that it's just like the good luck winning that game. Good luck keeping the approval of people who are that fickle. So I think it just has to be more about the incentives of the larger picture, which I'm sure he's very good at visualizing as, as a good entrepreneur. And I just don't see how the incentives line up to lose another half million or more in this match, which might actually be like the expectation of, of what his losses should be before even factoring the mindset issue into it. Yeah, that's a very, very great point as far as caring about the opinions of people that might not matter anyway, or that are so fickle that they just, you know, it's not worth it. Um, I want to go back to the point, though, that you said uh, the data looked bad because 5%. I hope I'm not misquoting that. I don't think I am. I don't know if you're misquoting it. I read the same, same thing, so I don't have it off the top of my head. I'm pulling it up. All right, pull it up. All right, I don't have the actual number, but this is what he says that's relevant. Whatever the unknowable truth is about how Venny VD and I match up, I could be confident I'm running poorly. But if I'm a significant underdog, this has maybe been a bottom 15% run. If I'm a significant favorite, it has been more like a bottom 0.5% run. By the way, this is when he's only down like 600K, I think. I think it was less than that. <laughs> I think it was around 400K. So if I knew nothing but the results so far, I could conclude that it's something around a 30, around something around 30 times more likely that I'm a significant underdog than a significant favorite. And a sliding scale for edges in between that. This is still Phil speaking. I then need to factor in my educated but inherently biased opinion of how I'm playing compared to him. Had I somehow been unaware of the results thus far, my opinion would be that I'm a favorite. And to be clear, by that I mean that I think I am probably a favorite. I'm always aware that I could be wrong. This is an important thing to know. So I like how he framed it because it's like, if he's not, if he doesn't have edge, it's a bottom 15% run. Still a bad run. If he has edge, it's a bottom 0.5% run. And then he does some division there and says it's like 30 times more likely that... Uh, he doesn't have edge than than that he does or something simple like that. What is it now that it's got to be worse? And like <laughs> at that gotta, point, yeah. Like how bad? This is a hard thing too. If you do have a, an ego around it, is that like, say you found out that there was a point one percent chance that you could have edge and run this bad for this long against the player? Do you pile on that point one percent on a prayer that you're actually running that bad? Like. This is a di- it's a dimension of statistical analysis that I think is really hard for someone to interpret in a balanced way if they actually are unwilling to admit that they're wrong. Like the amount of rationalization that takes place, I think, in these types of situations, and it shouldn't really be that hard when it's when it's so convincing of a number like 0.1 percent chance. Like that should just be auto throw in the towel, I think. Um, and I think that it could be. Even in the analysis, since, since since there wasn't a concrete BB per hundred, it it could be his analysis could be worse, right? Like the, the edge Vini Vidi has over him could be greater than what the analysis says, um, which is like sort of if I'm running this bad, it's only like a bottom five percent run, right? Like what's the alternative there? I think that was that's the follow up question. What's the alternative if it's not a five percent run? Um, the alternative is that. You're getting spanked. Yeah, you're getting smoked. What do you think he's going to do when he comes back? I hope he concedes this match. But that's just based on my limited perspective of the incentives that I think are in play. Because there clearly are some, like I mentioned, like, you know, if he was only going to lose on average 100K by finishing, maybe that's the number that just makes a lot of sense to continue on with, but like there is a point where the expectation of loss crosses a threshold where he does not have incentive to continue. Um, I mean, we have to assume that he doesn't have unlimited pockets 
for this, which I'm speculating on also. But um, it just we, seems like there's so much speculation. We don't know how it's. Well, actually, he, he, here's something I think is pretty uh, stable as an assumption. It doesn't feel like the amount of marketing impact in a positive way that this could generate from finishing this particular match could exceed like 500,000 euro. Like at that point, why not just put that money towards actual marketing? (laughs) If that is actually the play, which I think is like, it's definitely a significant portion of what's going on here. Like I find it hard to believe that the best case scenario for Galfond through all of this is not that people funnel to run at once to play poker. That would clearly be the the win for him. Yeah, like you said, he's not an ego-driven person. Um, so there has to be a strategic rationale for issuing this challenge. And tell me your thoughts on, on setting it up. Setting up like seven, I think it's seven challenges um, in a row and then having side bets on all of them before getting the results from the first monster that you face. I think we're seeing potentially the most pronounced example of a potential oversight in how important mindset is. I want to believe Phil saw this, this risk, Um, but it's a hard one to actually calculate in terms of how much it works against you. So the risk is that he, that what is happening happens. Worst case scenario, you you get smoked in the first match, whether you just ran well or you massively underestimated, whether you ran poorly or massively underestimated your opponent. And your mindset is so disturbed by that that you have to take time off and potentially forfeit this match. Now heading into the next match, there is a residual effect from the first. So in a vacuum, the odds for each match may be accurate maybe not though from the way the first one's going but even if they are accurate they get they get disturbed significantly by the mindset impacts of the previous matches that really only works against phil because since phil is you know i guess the the community and like he's not an underdog in any of these and if he is he's not much of an underdog i don't think uh, the action wise, well, he he's he's a big dog now against Action Freak. But whenever when everything started, like he was, was still, he a dog? Yeah, he was a dog against Action Freak when it when it first opened. Action Freak was minus one fifty two. Now he's minus two fifty six. So the, the lines are being adjusted. Yeah, that you can bet on, but Phil's side bets aren't being adjusted because those are cemented. They were cemented. Action Freak was one to one. Um, 150k to 150k side bet and action freak though which is the the guy coming up they're playing 50 percent higher stakes so my point i guess is that if phil is the universal favorite like throughout all the matches then he stands to lose more from getting smoked in an early match like his opponents are at an advantage by basically just doing nothing because most of them aren't expected to win in the first place. And if Phil enters their match together with a severely uh, negatively impacted mindset, well, then they've just, they basically just free rolled. They basically just want a free roll. Oh, and I would say that this is like a nightmare scenario coming true. Um, and even in like, I think Phil's second match comes up with Bill Perkins and where he can make up some ground. Um, they have a four, 400 K stop loss where Phil can win an extra 250 K versus Bill Perkins, 1 million side bet or yeah. Phil Galfon's putting up a mill. Perkins has 250. It's a 20 buy in free for all um, to 400 K stop loss. This is where things get super interesting to me though, is that like depending on how much money Phil actually has for the challenge, this could be a super scary match coming up. It really could. Because the amount that he could stand to lose in the side bet is like, it could potentially be crippling for however much money he has to spend on the project altogether. And to think that that wouldn't have a massive impact on mindset, most likely resulting in risk-averse tendencies, which he already said he noticed in the Vidi match, which is why he stopped it in the first place. Um, 
So props to him on the self-awareness there because I think a lot of people would push on for longer than a day or two when they notice those those things happening, especially with all the social pressure going on. Uh, if Phil loses to Bill Perkins and eats another $1.4 million, um, that is really, 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 really bad coming into his battle with Action Freak to the point to where it may, may be time to just call it, uh, which, again, I have no... He, he's at so much risk right now because of how this thing has started that it's just unbelievable projecting forward. But, like, how does the situation change if we found out that he actually has, like, $100 million somehow? It doesn't have any sort of, like, crisis effect that it does if he has only $2 million carved out for this challenge, which would make it way lower pressure for him going into the Perkins match and every act and every match thereafter. But, like, it doesn't seem like that's the case based on the way that he's responded to the first million-dollar loss. Because let's just break it down systematically. Somebody who doesn't have an ego involved does not have risk-averse issues unless there are also bankroll management issues in play. Like, I just... Maybe maybe there's some anomalies to that sequence, but, like, I just don't see somebody with unlimited money who doesn't have an ego problem needing to take a break for fear of them continuing to play risk averse. So I would put a lot of money on the statement that the amount that Phil has lost already is putting stress on his, his overall funding for the project. And the social pressure on top of that too. Like, I mean, it's just not fun. Like it is, it's, it's not fun getting smashed, getting spanked for, you know, 45 buy-ins doing so publicly while throwing out this challenge and, uh, you know, kind of in a way needling some of the other coaches in the, in the poker community and doing it as like, you know, this, this big festival, this big event. Um, and then, cause I mean, Phil Galfon, he like, he is an asset to the poker community. He's a really smart guy. I'm very grateful for all the things that he does. It's not fun for anybody watching him just get killed. I wonder if he does have that also, you have the coaches, right? The coaches that run at once where he he's their champion. He's their leader. Um, and their leaders getting smashed in a very public way. So all of these things, I think it's hard to quantify um, the effect on mindset that each of them have. But I would think that there is some effect. Like, I think this whole thing is basically a mindset challenge. If, if you really break it down, like, yeah, Phil comes in with a certain technical framework. So do all the other opponents. But the huge asymmetry is that Phil's got to do it for eight matches in a row. And he might have to do it after taking a, a massive hit by running bad in, in one of the earlier matches. So I don't really know. Like, I could speculate on different outcomes because this could go different ways. But I think the way that it's going so far, when it starts off like this, I think the thing that we stand to learn and remember most from the match is the power of mindset or how much mindset is actually a factor, which is great for mindset coaching, but <laughs> like, it's funny to think about. And obviously like it's never funny when somebody just gets punished, um, especially when it's variance that's responsible for most of it. And then to have that have an impact on their mindset. I'm not saying that's funny, but uh, I'm saying that for a community that I think massively undervalues mindset, this is an eye-opening experience to be able to to watch. Oh, f- for sure. What do you think? What do you think about the fact that you know Phil Galfon has so many training videos up describing his thought processes, um, how he thinks about the game, how he approaches the game? I mean, there's a lot of intel for an online crusher to listen to build a profile to try to figure out a way to uh gain an edge on phil even before going in that phil doesn't really have access to i don't know if that's totally true i would venture to say that phil has optics on on veni vd in some way shape or form as far as like database building a database downloading something 
having his coaches. He's got to, right? They, they had to set odds for the whole thing based on something, some sort of data. So, like, Phil's preparation was most likely geared in some way towards how he was going to approach the match with, with Veniviti to start. But with heads up, there are so many progressions and phases that the match goes through when players are systematically countering the initial strategy that they came in with that I don't think that's actually as valid. I don't think the initial study period where you're trying to gather information around your opponent is really as valuable as the ability to calibrate around uh, match meta over the course of the entire match. Because like really what heads up comes down to, in my opinion, is who has a better structural understanding around how to make adjustments that are going to exploit the trend that the other player is showing in a specific phase of the match. In time. In time. Like the, the dimension that gives great heads up players edge is their ability to conceptualize time and to put it in its place and to not make assumptions too quick about information exchange that hasn't had enough time to crystallize to be able to distinguish what is variance from what is actual edge and to be able to distinguish what is a specific aspect of my opponent's strategy that is real and what is just confirmation bias so i think that one of the considerations that phil might be taking time off to think about is based on what I've seen from this guy, how realistic is it that I could employ a very exploitative counter strategy that could help me win it back? But then you have to think, well, Veni Vidi is clearly a seasoned player. It's not the first time he's seen somebody pull a counter and assuming he has a really solid understanding of the game, there's no reason to think he's just going to let himself be exploited for his previous trends in the match. So... I think it is a consideration, but it's not just as simple as being like, well, let me explore what he was doing so I can counter it. Like he's moving too. It's, it's dynamic. Right. And whoever does it quicker is the one who's going to have a more significant edge and, and end up with the money. And we have to assume that's been going on already. Like 5,000 hands or however many they've played. 10, 10,000 now. Okay. That's like not a small amount of heads up hands by any, in any way. So they've already been going through motions in terms of metagame. And Phil's not demonstrating that he can keep pace. Yeah, so the only logical thing to do is to concede. Unless you think that the average loss by finishing is somehow more valuable for optics than spending that money on some other form of, of marketing. And again, I'm speculating that the, the overall intent here is to drive traffic to run it, to run it once. I would think but so. Maybe it's something else. I, I mean, they're a burgeoning poker site. They're trying to get, trying to get signups, trying to get people there, trying to get people interested. This is a great way. I mean, we're talking about it right now, right? Without the Galfon challenge, we wouldn't be talking about well, it. Well, right I wonder though, like we're talking about it, but how many people are depositing because of it? Like, I, I don't know, but clearly they've thought about it and I hope they have metrics on it. I'm guessing they do. It'd be crazy if they didn't. It would be crazy, <laughs> very irresponsible if they didn't. I'm sure that there's there's obviously some strategy behind the scenes where they've looked at everything. They've figured out that, you know, this is the risk that they're willing to take. And so they do. How does this affect, so coming in, Phil Galfon was a slight dog against Vini Vidi. And I do want to talk about mindset coming into Action Freak because they're playing, like I said, 50% bigger right now. Extrapolate these results at close to a million. Um, add 50%. That's 1.5 mil uh, in 10K hands against Action Freak. And Action Freak was given way better odds uh, or actually closer odds, 150K to win 150K versus Phil um, giving 200k to win 100k side bet in Vini Vidi, which means, based on the data, based on their research, that they think Action Freak is a, a much stronger player than Vini Vidi. Um, what do you think should be the the plan there, preparing for that? I don't think I would advise preparation if the amount of money that Phil can lose is 
strained by the first match. Like, I think everything depends on how much money Phil actually has to be able to continue on. Because the the most important mindset aspect is how deep are you, how deep are your pockets, how well rolled are you to continue, especially after Phil has shown that there has been some risk aversion ten, tendencies already. My speculation is that that's occurring because there's some financial stress. What? Is, okay, so let's let's do some theoreticals. So let's say his money is five million. Well, that's, the the first distinction we need to make is: Are we talking his net worth or the money that he's set aside to set be aside able for this challenge? Okay, cool. So, like at, at the point at which the money is set aside for the challenge, I think it's basically written off in the mind of the player who sets it aside. That's the healthy way of doing it, I think. Which is like, if he did set aside five million, then yeah, it sucks when you lose, you know, the first million or so. But you still have four million left, and it doesn't really matter if you lose it all. Because let's be honest, if you can put up five million for a challenge, life's pretty good already. <laughs> yeah. So what gets messy is if that delineation isn't in play, which I I, I can't imagine that Phil doesn't have this figured out. Like we have to keep giving him credit; he's clearly one of the more intelligent players in the industry, um, and entrepreneurs, which is going to give him even more of a skill set in this department. It doesn't seem like he should be in a situation where he's got to worry about potentially losses infringing on life funds. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't seem like Bill started with 10 million net worth and now he's considering pulling from his Roth IRA to finish the match. You know, this is I don't think this is what's going on. So maybe there's less stress on it than I think in terms of that than I initially said. Like he's demonstrating risk aversion. Maybe that's just coming from the fact that uh, there's a little bit of com- competition, ego involved, combined with the fact that he just doesn't want to lose the five million because clearly it's it's not fun. And I'm throwing five million out as a number that like he might have set aside for this, but it's clearly a more healthy situation to be in than like not knowing how much you're willing to lose, and then like pulling from life funds to potentially keep you in the race like that's the most dangerous thing that a player can do i don't want to veer too much into speculation but i have considered that it is a business um i don't know if they've raised funds for run at once poker or how they've managed to do so but if it is a marketing thing i mean could this be structured somehow in in their business as a marketing expense i would hope and expect that's how it's done like I almost feel like we're being disrespectful by not giving them credit for having this figured out. They, Unless they're crazy, they clearly have a budget set aside for how much they can afford to lose. Now, the question is, if the odds are shifting a bunch in, in the matches, does the amount they can afford to lose change based on how often they're expected to lose it now? You get what I mean? Like if he's actually such a big dog because of what happened in the first match, maybe the amount they can afford to risk actually goes down because they don't have as good of odds of, of winning the future matches. Right. Like if you set aside 5 million and 5 million is the worst case scenario that can only happen 2% of the time, that's way different than if your player gets crushed in the first match and now there's a 25% chance that you end up losing the 5 million. Yeah, because the first is working on an assumption without any data. Now we're getting some feedback that says maybe there's some issues. So that's why I think that I think the right way to go about this when you introduce the mindset dimension is that whatever amount of money you set aside based on the initial odds of all the matches combined, you've got to throw in the towel faster if your player starts to deteriorate mentally along the way. It just has to be that way, I would think. Otherwise, you're, you're just chasing. So basically, what what you're saying is against VD VD or uh, against Action Freak. What do you what do you think the right play is like right now? Looking at it non emotionally, um, from like a purely ignoring the the unknowns, the secondary benefits of the challenge, what they have set up. Um, I would insta concede in a vacuum. Yeah, I don't even think it's close. 
unless Phil's on an island, like having some sort of awake, second awakening right now. <laughs> and he's yeah. just going to come back like as the Buddha, the poker Buddha. Super Phil. Leveling um, up, yeah. But in terms of adding the the real main incentive, which we're speculating on, but seems to be a fair assumption, which is that continuing the match is very good for marketing. Then it just becomes that calculation of how much more can you afford to lose for whatever benefits you think you're getting from the marketing exposure. And I would expect that to be an extremely difficult calculation. It's tough. I hope, I hope you're right that, that Phil's on his break, his vacation right now comes back as the poker Buddha, um, recharged and ready to kick ass. I have a suspicion that, you know, he is a human being who is obviously capable of being compromised emotionally, like every other human being that exists on the planet. And um, it's tough. It's tough sledding from here. It's very unfortunate that it started out the way that it has because it's just changing the narrative. You know, like like I said, we we the poker world I think needed and Phil needed a back and forth battle, right? Like the way that the the challenge is structured, even break even is a massive win for run at once poker. Getting absolute smashed is not good. This would be my bet, I think, because uh, we haven't talked about what we would bet on if we, if we did. So so this, this could be fun. If there was a bet that allowed me to bet on the, the the likelihood of Phil conceding, I have a feeling that would be a very undervalued bet right now. Uh, I, I think the rational conclusion to what we've seen so far unless I'm missing a huge dimension to the puzzle, a huge piece of the puzzle, I think Phil should be conceding this match a very, very high percentage of the time. And I would bet on that because I think there would be good value on that if that bet is available. Now, I would also instantly pile on money against Phil if he, in the next match if he decided to continue to resume this one with Benny Vitti. So I'd have two bets. If there is a bet available that Phil concedes, I want that bet. Concedes versus Vanny Vitti. The moment that Phil resumes versus Vanny Vitti, I'm piling on Action Freak. Yeah. Because I think that line's going to be off on average. Does it just pay out? Like, I don't know that the terms of the bet, if he concedes pre-match, <laughs> do you just auto-win? Um, auto win the bet? I don't know. But they clearly have rules for stuff like what happens when you take time off. Like Phil was paying 3000 a day or something. I think Phil's going to play Action Freak in some capacity. I think they're going to play. I, I think that Phil's going to pull the plug, though. If, if he gets smoked in any way like this early on, I think he's going to be very, very quick to pull the plug, which that in and of itself is a mindset issue. Um, heading into a match yeah i think it's almost like if phil comes back and resumes with vanny vidi the statement he's making is basically like i'm gonna try to pick up some momentum with a new strategy that i've been working on that i think might have some additional edge to just come back and not make any real adjustments and pray for some momentum just feels like it's throwing up a hail mary to me and i would expect that to be like pretty negative ev but maybe there's also some hidden value in not conceding for the optics of the match. Moving forward from there, as soon as as soon as Phil resumes, I I immediately think the action freak line is off. Because on average, Phil's mindset is going to be massively deteriorated or at least significantly deteriorated from resuming. It's a catch-22, right? He's like damned if he does and damned if he doesn't at this point. You, the, the optics are not... The optics are bad conceding. The, op- the optics are really bad losing another million. Um, so no matter what, if he's at a significant disadvantage... That's true. Even if, he can af- even if he can afford to lose another million, the optics are still really bad in doing it. 
Right. You're just watching him get slaughtered day in and day out. Like, And then it just becomes even more clear how big of an underdog he was against another major pro. Right. Like, at least <laughs> this is something we haven't talked about. Like, at least right now, there's still some possibility that it was just, like, the worst run of all time. <laughs> yeah. You go play another 10K hands and lose another million, like, nobody's going to remember this as, like, a bad run. It's, they're just going to remember it as just, like, slaughtering. Yeah, it'll be hubris. It'll be a lesson not to fly too close to the sun, not to just cha- make an open challenge to the poker world. I mean, even when when Durr did it, you know, he was at the peak of his powers, right? Like he was ahead of the curve in a lot of ways, and it ended poorly for him. Um, Phil, like you said, he's an entrepreneur who's been focused on his business. I was I was kind of surprised when he said that his initial goal was to study for like four to six hours a day, but then he didn't have time and it had been like 60 to 90 minutes. Um, I was pretty shocked at that. I I assumed he would be like, you know, Rocky in training camp somewhere in somebody's basement um, doing the montage thing, knocking the rust off and running the Sims. Yeah. Getting himself fully prepared for this war that he's about to, about to battle. I mean, yeah, it's just a, it comes down to what his approach was. If it was that he, I mean, I don't read Phil as a super GTO guy. I don't think he's ever been. So it's possible that a more functional regiment for him was just to put himself in the healthiest space possible mindset wise. Like you're coming off a 10 year career where you were the goat at one point, like, yeah, the game changes, but like your structural understanding of the game is integrated. So from there, just like, do you have enough optics over the actual opponent that you're preparing for that doing a lot of work would make sense? Or do you really want to go that super balanced route of studying Sims and hoping that you can make a big upgrade in your GTO understanding of the game before you deploy into the match? I don't know. Personally, I would do everything possible to enter the match in a place of lowest stress um, and highest resilience which I think would be more of like a physical mindset regiment than a strategic one. That's true. That's true because like you said, this is a mindset battle, um, a very concrete example of a mindset battle. Um, another thing that Phil could do to prepare himself is he's you know got a ton of ton of coaches that run at once, like just battle those guys, put in some, some hands against them. Um, now you're talking like more fatigue though too. Like th- that's... It's tough. It's it's tough to, and I'm sure like you know, professional athletes have this figured out pretty well. Like look, look like a boxer. Like this is it's. I think it's a good metaphor where like there's a balance to strike between how much you train before the the fight, so that you're not fatigued for the fight, but you're well, uh, well groomed. I guess it's it's interesting thing. Like how many hands could Phil have played? in the two months leading up to this match? Could it have been even 15,000? Not a ton, I wouldn't think. So I think he has to sort of just bank on the fact that his muscle memory still works from all the poker that he's played and his general outlook and structural understanding of the game is strong. And then whatever optics get thrown your way from how you want to prepare the match model for a specific opponent, I think that's where most of the tinkering uh gets done but i'm saying that as someone who's not very gto geared which i'm pretty sure phil isn't either and i'm also saying that's as someone who has a bias for sort of trying to create match models from an eagle eye view as opposed to like you know figuring out how i'm going to play a specific hand versus a player um yeah i think more more so what i was saying was just you know, like like in a football sense, or like in a boxing sense. Let's stick with the boxing analogy. Um, you're preparing for a fight. Who do you bring in as a training partner? Right. You bring in somebody that's somewhat similar to the actual opponent you're going to fight. Um, so that what I was saying was Phil could bring in his coaches at, at Rio and sort of play against them to sort of gauge where he's at as far as his poker skill skill level, and then extrapolate from there the odds of his match and the expectation. I can give a really good counter argument to what I just said too, which is that poker is unique in the sense that, yeah, there is mental fatigue, but it's much more rewarding for someone who has a true passion to play than it is for a boxer who has a true passion to play. Like you cannot spar in a boxing ring for eight hours a day and just get, 
your shit kicked in and then expect to be in a good position to go into the main fight. You just can't do it. Like there's just too much physical burden on the whole thing. But funny enough, the thing that we're starting to realize is the most important asset to look for in a player before contracting him just on the company side of owning a staking uh, and running a staking and training team is that we are looking for who has the most genuine passion for the game. Because if a guy has that, he's way less susceptible to burnout and all the other mindset issues thereafter. So like the thing that Phil might have on his side the most is that he just genuinely loves to play. If that's still true for him, which it seems like he is based on one of his posts. And if that's true, then maybe he can get away with doing way more preparation in terms of putting hands in before the match because it's just not so... doesn't feel like work. Exactly. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, like, there's a lot of speculation. And I think we can, we can just safely assume to end this that hope Phil Galfond finds some wins, can string together some, uh, some positive sessions even if it's against Vini Vidi, if he doesn't concede right now, put something together that makes him feel good heading into the next matches. Because I think that could do wonders for his mindset in the future. Um, if he did alter his strategy and then get stomped into the ground by Vini Vidi even more so, then that's just really, really, really bad moving forward. Um, so I think that's that's my hope anyway. Um, but really what we're seeing in real time is, um, you know, could be a, a changing of the guard as far as, you know, uh, the 2010 goat, um, 2020s, these guys are pretty good. Benny Vitti can't remain anonymous, right? No. I mean, it's like, it's like a Sildor, um, coming off of this, it, there's too much financial gain to there, there's too much financial gain to share your identity it'd be pretty boss if he didn't though <laughs> there's like we didn't talk about this but like there's other ways to go about this too where phil just cancels the tougher matches and keeps the ones where he's a big favorite yeah the optics on that though i think <laughs> it's really really bad really bad like really bad optics there it's probably best for mindset, though. Oh, I think emotionally and mindset, that's that's probably the best play. I think there's almost a 0% chance that's what Phil does because there's just too much social pressure. It would just look really, really bad, I think. So Cliffs, I guess, keep your life roll separate from your bankroll. And I guess play your heart out <laughs> as long as you think that the odds of the games that you're playing haven't shifted so dramatically that you should reassess how much of your bankroll you're willing to put into it. And be wary of issuing open challenges to the poker world because you never know who's going to freaking pop out of nowhere and be an absolute crusher. I wonder, my, my closing point would be, I really wonder how Phil thought it would play out. Like, yeah, odds are getting set, but like, I wonder what, I mean, he thought he had edge going into this match, but I wonder how he came to that conclusion unless he's been playing in these games and has good optics on the types of regs in these games. Like, it seems a little bit strange. I don't know how much he was playing leading up to this, um, especially in the major games available, but like, it seems strange to me that he would have declared himself a favorite coming off of like three years of rust, relatively speaking to what he used to be without accurately assessing the state of the nosebleed market that he was about to issue the, the invite to. I mean, he, he mentioned that, you know, one of the more disappointing things is that he, you know, he's been on a $1 million downswing before, but what's, what was most disappointing to him was the expectation versus the reality of the thing and how, they're vastly different and how, you know, there are all of these costs that weren't factored based on his expectation. Um, you're right. I, I don't know how they did the research. I don't know how they, they made the odds. I would assume that they had. How do you even go about 
figuring your edge versus a player in a pool you're not familiar with when you also aren't even familiar with how easy it's going to be to knock rust off of your own game. It just seems like there had to be more. They had to know more than that. Phil had to know more than that in order to declare edge. It just seems like it would be hubris to do otherwise. You would have to have data that you thought was good that you could trust to rely on. Otherwise, I mean, like you said, it's it's almost an insult to suggest that like this whole challenge isn't like a marketing um, expense for run at once poker, yeah. right? It's, it's it's also an insult, I think, to assume that they didn't do a shit ton of research on who they're playing and how Phil believed he matched up against this person. Um, but it can't be ignored at this point that it's very likely that they massively oh they fucked up miscalculated. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty clear right now that they fucked up. Um, how they messed up, I don't know how, but yeah, it's, it's not good (laughs) to put it likely. There's still ways it could end up good, but, um, the slice of the good pie is shrinking. (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, yeah, but either way, I think at the end of the day, Phil's going to be good. Um, I don't think this is going to have a massive effect on his life in the long term it might mean some not so good things for run at once poker depending on their budget and all of that sort of stuff um if they're able to continue you know operation expenses i did read an article that said that they they didn't think that run at once in its current state run at once poker could exist for like the next six months so you know it is what it is these are the results, and uh, I think that eventually we will have more answers. Maybe Phil Galfon will, will talk about how they structured this, how they came to the odds, what they looked at. That's uh, going to be the, the real interesting podcast to listen to whenever that happens. Yeah, I want to know what went wrong. I want to know the false assumptions that, that came into play because I think it's clear there were assumptions. They just have not been correct. Those assumptions were based on a lot of stuff that we've been speculating on too. Well, we know we we have a ballpark idea, right? Like there's only so many tangible things that they could be based on. People playing against Vini Vidi, like coaches getting feedback, direct feedback from the coaches that, that give them some insight into their skill level, looking at the data, analyzing the data. Um, it seems like, I know this sounds stupid in light of the current circumstances, but it seems a little foolproof <laughs> that you could gauge a situation more accurately than what what has happened but obviously Wait, say that say that last part again it seems foolproof that you could that you could that you would be able to determine that you know they gave vini vidi two to one on this challenge i see i see it seems crazy you'd be able to do that without a lot of intel yeah that and that the intel could be that wrong. Like, how could it be that massively, you know, misanalyzed? Now you're going down the very dangerous rabbit hole of chalking this all up to variance. So you see how susceptible it can be, and you're not even in the match. Right. Like, what if Phil's sitting there like, damn it. <laughs> like, how, how could they have been this? There's no way they could have been this wrong. Which then makes you think that the variance calcs are, that it's more likely to be variance, and a lot of nasty things can happen from that that mental loop yeah it's tough and maybe we'll never know but i want to know but yeah man it's been great talking to you thanks for coming on um let's maybe when we get some more information instead of uh tons of speculation on unknowables we can do another one for sure it'll be cool to recap on uh how wildly off we were on certain things and and how on we were in other areas all right man take care See you, bro. See you next month in Atlanta.